the first subject we'll consider um, this morning is anti-racist racism. Anti-racist racism. And one day, last year, there was a, a brother in Christ who was on the way home from work in the city when he told me that he wasn't going to get home at the usual time because there was a protest that was going on in the city. Now, this was in 2020 when a lot of protests were accompanied by rioting and looting, so my interest and my concern was piqued. So I began to look and see what protests were going on in the city on that day, and I found a website that was listing all the protests that were going on in New York City. And as I was looking at this website, I came across a pamphlet entitled How to Be an Anti-Racist Ally by Maddie Hagen and Tucker Day. Upon reading through the pamphlet, I quickly came to realize that being an anti-racist includes being racist. The action step found right in here of always support the leadership of people of color is expressly racist. Selecting someone over someone else to a position of leadership simply on the basis of skin color, not because of their proposed solutions or experience or acumen or skill set or integrity, but selecting them simply on the basis of skin color, as is told in this pamphlet, always support the leadership of people of color. That is racist. But one of the things that you come to quickly find is that proponents of anti-racism, they don't hide their racism. Ibram X. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, who's referenced and his book cover is right here at the back of this pamphlet or in this pamphlet, um, he notes, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination, end quote. What you come to quickly find is that this movement seeks to, one, normalize racism. Two, it seeks to justify the sin of partiality. Three, it seeks to remove objective standards of qualifications whereby the competency of individuals could be measured over and against one another to see who is properly suited for a given task or role or position. And four, it also seeks to make the innocent guilty by redefining racism. And that's what they do. According to the aforementioned pamphlet, it is not enough to be not racist. Now you can look with inside, inside the pamphlet and you'll see Ibram X. Kendi's definitions, the examples of them, and one of them is, according to him, to be a racist means to be one who, quote, is supporting a racist policy through their inaction or expressing a racist idea. So notice the emphasis on policies as opposed to people and the emphasis on inaction. You start reading between the lines, it's pretty easy to see that, in other words, if you don't jump on board with their movement, their definition of injustice, their identification of who are the oppressed and who the oppressors are, the overthrow of the status quo, of course, as they define the status quo, if you don't denounce institutions and historical figures and political candidates that they tell you to denounce, you've guessed it, you are a racist. Because if you don't support that movement, you're participating in inaction. Therefore, according to their definition, you are a racist. They make the rules, they rewrite the definitions, and you could be branded as a racist if you do not keep their statutes. 
Right? You might be looking like at a grandparent who you just thought loves people regardless of their skin color, loves people regardless of their social class, but because they are not acting as an anti-racist and seeking to overthrow the status quo and so on, according to Ibram X. Kendi's definition, your grandmother would be a racist. Even if she loves people despite their colors, the amount of melanin in their skin, and even if she doesn't discriminate in any way whatsoever just because she does not participate in the actions that they say you need to participate in. Let's see the manifold problems with this from a biblical perspective. First, we'll start here. Anti-racism attempts to normalize racism. That's the first problem. As seen, it calls for present and future discrimination. As Christians, we are commanded to avoid the sin of partiality, and that would include ethnic partiality. We are commanded to avoid that. James chapter 2, verse 9 says, If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, within the context of James's epistle, the immediate application would be something like this. It would look like receiving somebody who was wealthy into a local church and then exalting them to a position of honor, but then taking somebody else who is poor and treating them as though they were less than. That's the immediate application within the context of James's epistle, that people should be welcomed into the assembly of God equally, regardless of their financial or social status. You don't treat a rich person well and a poor person bad. And conversely, you don't treat a poor person well and a rich person bad. You don't show partiality. But the command here to not be partial in this principle transcends social classes. His application to appearance, to status, and to ethnicity as well. To practice ethnic partiality is not honorable. It is explicitly sin. Now, as an important aside, let me just say this before getting on to point two. It's worth noting that Christians should continue to exalt the beauty of God's design. God's design in making one human race. Where all men and all women, regardless of their color share the same image of God. Granted, the image of God has been marred by sin, but nonetheless, when you look at Genesis 9, we know that we all still bear the image of God. Christians should continue to exalt the beauty of God's design. All people share the same father and mother, ultimately, Adam and Eve. We all come from the same common stock. Think of what Paul said on Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. He said that God, speaking of God, he said he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Now this was likely radical to many of the Greeks who heard this, especially those who looked at non-Greek speaking people as barbarians. Paul's statement claimed that all people groups were from the same common stock. Ethnic partiality or racism is both silly and sinful. It's silly because, again, we all share the same earthly parents, Adam and Eve. We come from the same common stock. And the amount of melanin that one person has in his skin or her skin as opposed to another does not make anybody better than somebody else. And it is also sinful because God explicitly commands us to not show partiality. Now, second, as seen in the aforementioned pamphlet, the... Anti-racist racism not only normalizes the sin of ethnic partiality, but it promotes the sin of partiality in judgment. 
Okay, so it's not just a discrimination based upon skin color when you look at one people group and you exalt them over another, but it also seeks to normalize the sin of ethnic, uh, the sin of partiality with reference to judgment, with God, which God also forbids. For instance, Leviticus 19.15 reads, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. That's important. Leviticus 19 is commanding in the Mosaic law that you weren't to show favoritism to somebody who was poor or somebody who was great or prominent or rich. You were supposed to judge fairly. Even if the right decision with the right application of the law in that context led to the poor becoming poorer or the rich becoming richer, that wasn't the issue. The issue was do what's right. Don't show partiality. Not to the great, not to the poor. Judgment was to be fair. It was not to be based upon class as it should not be based upon ethnicity. Judgment was to be rendered based upon actions and evidence. This concept of avoiding partiality and judgment is echoed in a number of places in the Old Testament. And we also see it referenced in James chapter 2, verse 1 and James chapter 2, verse 9. Now third, while... Racist anti-racism thinks that you right past wrongs by practicing present and future wrongs. The Christian is commanded, Romans 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. And then it goes on and says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21. Evil is not the Christian's instrument for doing good. You don't right past wrongs by practicing present and future wrongs. You don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. Practicing partiality is a sin and past wrongs should not be used to justify its present and future practice. Fourth, the pamphlet's action step of always support the leadership of people of color assumes that a person's color is a qualification for leadership. And I would even argue a superior one at that. Compare that with the standards for leadership in the New Testament church. It didn't matter in the New Testament church what ethnicity a person was. Whether they were a barbarian or a Scythian, whether they were Jew or Greek, it didn't matter. And it shouldn't matter. What was to be evaluated when you were evaluating somebody for the position of eldership in the local church? Well, you look at 1 Timothy 3, you look at Titus 1, and you would see that it was predominantly about character. You also had to see if that man was qualified in managing his household well. And then, was there an aptitude for teaching? The skin color of a person had nothing to do with it. Nobody should be exalted to a position or removed from a position or denied a position based upon skin color. And now, if you were to look in the Old Testament as well, you would also see, to use an Old Testament reference, uh, the Proverbs exalt skillfulness. Skillfulness. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine speaks of a man who is skillful at what he does and says that such a one will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. So in the Proverbs, you see something like skillfulness exalted, not skin tone. Fifth and finally, anti-racist proponents do not have the authority to rewrite God's revealed ethics. As seen above... And previously, their methods of opposing what they see to be a kind of ubiquitous racism is sin. It's sin 
when you, for instance, have a religious institution create man-made days of obligation where if people don't go to a mass on said day, they have a mortal sin on their soul and they cannot get into heaven. That is sin. You don't have the authority to do that. It's also sin when you rewrite God's ethical standards and you come up with a definition of racism that does not fit the Scriptures. That too is wrong. You can't do that and you can't rewrite God's revealed standards of right and wrong. Fallen man does not have the authority to add his own commandments to God's word. Now, the place above all places where ethnic partiality, a.k.a. racism, is to not be seen, where the opposite is to be seen of those things and where those things are not to be seen is the church. The church. Think about it from our opening scripture reading. Think about the kinds of people that were listed in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul spoke of these different people groups gathering together. The Greek and the Jew. People groups who were, were, generally speaking, at odds with one another. We remember how much the Jews hated to hear of salvation being proclaimed to the Gentiles, that they wanted to kill the Apostle Paul the minute that he said that he was called to be an Apostle to the Gentiles. There was such hatred between those people groups. He describes also the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He references the barbarian. The barbarian would be like people who did not speak Greek. But then if you wanted to amplify what a barbarian was, if you will, you referenced the Scythian. And the Scythian were people that were, seemed to be from around the Black Sea. And they were like the uncivilized people. They were like even more barbarian than the barbarians. So he lists Jews and Greeks, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian. He even goes on to speak of the slave and the free man. But then he says this, but Christ is all and in all. That's interesting because that first all is in the neuter and the second all is masculine. But Christ is all. It's as though he's saying, you see these social and these cultural barriers that separated people? No, 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 no. Not anymore. Not in the New Testament church. Christ is all. He is the ultimate point of reference. He is the point of commonality. Christ is everything. And then he goes on to say, and Christ is in all. And he's speaking of all the people of God. Whether they are barbarians or Scythians, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, they shared the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in each one of them via the presence of the Holy Spirit. The church above all places on planet earth is to be the place where ethnic partiality is not seen, but where there is a unity that the world does not know of is seen. Where you can have people from different social classes, different ethnic groups looking at one another and saying, we are family forever because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. We know that in and of ourselves, there is nothing that makes me inherently better than anyone else. We reject ethnocentrism. Any one of us in this room who would look at our backgrounds and maybe countries from which we came or our lineage and say, that makes me better because I came from this country or that lineage. No, we reject that. We reject ethnocentrism. We do not look at people and base their value or their guilt or lack thereof based upon their skin color. We look at all people sharing the same common stock. We are all made in the image of God. We are all sinners who have fallen and we are all those who have committed sin against the holy God and we know that every one of us had to be Reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. 
there are so many points of commonality with human beings. All made in the image of God. We're all sinners. We all need to be reconciled to God through the one way He has made, through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in the church, that unity is to be seen. People of different ages, different skin colors, different backgrounds, different, different social classes, saying Christ is all. He is our everything. And among His people, He is in all. Thanks be to God. I want to, for about, for about the next 15, maybe 20 minutes, I want to just um, give you a little bit of an introduction. And I think rightly, um, rightly communicating what this theory believes, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to critical race theory. Because among what you have heard so far in privilege and oppression and in anti-racism, so much of it flows out from critical race theory. So I'm going to take a little bit of time right now. We're going to consider the subject of critical race theory. Now you might say, why even cover the topic of critical race theory, often referred to as CRT? There's a possibility that many people in the room have heard this mentioned so much in the last year and a half that you don't want to hear about it anymore. And I understand, I understand. But let me tell you on the outset that if a person or if a government or a judiciary system embraces the worldview that's espoused in critical race theory, it will lead to a view of justice and the application of the law, a view of people, the view of personal rights, and a view of truth that contradicts the Word of God. Hence, our need to understand this issue and see how CRT's worldview contradicts the Christian worldview. First, a little bit of background. Introduced and propagated by college professors in the 1970s, essentially the second half of the 20th century, for the sake of time, I will leave aside referencing names and college affiliations. CRT is a way to view America's history and institutions slash systems through the lens of race. Whereas many, if not most people who have lived in the United States in the late 20th century, early 21st century, would look at America as a kind of unique melting pot where you have people from all different parts of the world who are living in one place together and they're sharing a common view of representative government, individual freedom, rule of law, and so on, CRT sees racism as the normal state of affairs in American society. They don't look at it as a sin that is among other sins that rears its ugly head among fallen people. They look at it as the common state of affairs in American society. They say that it is, quote, the ordinary, not aberrational, normal science, the usual way society does business, to quote two writers from Critical Race Theory and Introduction. In CRT's view, the institutions of the land and the perceptions of the people are all stained with racism. And you might begin to say, wait a minute. Yes, there were times in America's history when racism was prevalent and systemic. Take, for example, slavery and Jim Crow. But as a nation, we are well beyond that. Not to mention that from the founding of our nation, there were those who vehemently opposed slavery. Not to mention there would be many who would shed their blood and die for the abolition of it. But CRT does not want to leave the past in the past. As Kimberly Crenshaw stated in a 2020 interview on CNN when she described critical race theory as, quote, an approach to grappling with a history of white supremacy that rejects the belief that what's in the past is in the past and that the laws and systems that grow from the past are detached from it. 
So you might ask, okay, well then where does that leave America's current systems and institutions in a CRT, critical race theory, worldview? Well, many CRT advocates would share the perspective of the realists that were referred to in Derek Bell's chapter entitled Racial Realism in the work Critical Race Theory and Legal Doctrine. Quote, The whole liberal worldview of private rights and public sovereignty mediated by the rule of law needed to be exploded. Also note, when you hear that CRT is merely a tool that's used for legal analysis, that is disingenuous. It is not. As the authors of that uh, aforementioned book, Critical Race Theory and Introduction, cite, although CRT began as a movement in the law, it has rapidly spread beyond that discipline. They go on and say, unlike some academic disciplines, critical race theory contains an activist dimension. So if you ever hear that, it's just the stuff of higher education, and what's all this talk about CRT? It's just kind of talking about something that's discussed in you know, academia. It's not something that's affecting the real world. Not according to them. There's an activist element, so you wouldn't be surprised when you see it show up in the streets. You wouldn't be surprised when you see it show up in schools, in elementary schools. You wouldn't be surprised when you see it show up in employee training seminars and so on, because there's an activist dimension to it that they fully acknowledge. Now, not to overdo the history, but knowing the soil from which CRT sprouted is, I think, helpful. Critical race theory emerged out of the murky waters of critical theory. Critical theory, which, in, at least in this sense, is similar to Marxism, sees the world through an oppressor-oppressed dynamic. Right? That's how Marx and, saw the world, essentially, through the, with the struggle between the classes, an oppressor and oppressed dynamic. Well, critical theory looks at the world in the same way. The critical part of critical theory was with respect to power structures in society. And the theory part was this, that society's problems are found in the structures and systems found in society more so than it is found in individuals' choices. The problem is the structures. That's where the emphasis is. Now, CRT, critical race theory, as opposed to critical theory, has its theoretical lens sharply focused. So whereas Marx and Hegel pitted the problematic struggle in terms of classes, CRT identifies the struggle in terms of race, stating that all of America's systems, institutions, and laws are tainted with the stain of whiteness, leading to minorities, whether they know it or not, being oppressed, and that white people, whether they know it or not, are working to perpetuate the racist oppression of minorities. Therefore, the system has to come down and be rebuilt. Now, you might say, how do they prove this? Those are some really broad-based statements. You are painting with a really broad brush. You're making really big accusations that cover a lot of people and a lot of institutions. And you might say, how do they make that case? You might say, granted, there is racism that occurs among all people groups. And wherever it is seen, it is a sinful mingling of partiality and pride, oftentimes hatred as well. And it's seen among all people groups. But isn't it wrong to indict the perceptions of an entire people group, i.e., in this case, white people, and that the institutions that comprise the United States of America can all be indicted with this indictment? Isn't it wrong to judge people and institutions in the present by the sins of people and institutions in the past? 
And isn't the United States of America, by so many objective markers, a place where you can honestly say, no, generally speaking, even from a common grace human perspective, it's not a racist nation when you look at the markers. You say so many people from so many different ethnic groups continue to come to this nation. You say that this is the only white majority country that has voted to elect a black president and twice at that. And that there are a number of different ethnic groups who have come as legal immigrants that have excelled and been very successful in the United States of America. So again, you might ask, how do they prove this? You're making really big assumptions and you're indicting a whole bunch of people in many institutions. How do they prove this? Herein lies a big problem with critical race theory. Critical race theory's epistemology, meaning how you know what you know. That's what epistemology essentially refers to. CRT contends that there is a meta-narrative and that the stories and standpoints of the oppressed make the case. Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk have written... Minority status, we go on to say, brings with it a presumed competence to speak about race and racism. They also go on to say that CRT places conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses in a broader perspective that includes things like emotions and the unconscious. To be sure, a person's emotions, not that they're not without value, but they're not authoritative. And neither is a person's unproven conclusions about what another person's unconscious actions are. If Paul's teaching was evaluated by the Bereans, CRT's propositions should be undoubtedly called to task by Christians, evaluated not through the standpoints of fallen men, but through the infallible word of God. And so while there's much that can be said, I want to give you at least a few points. We'll see how many we cover concerning how a CRT worldview contradicts the Bible. First, the way in which CRT comes to conclusions minimizes evidence in the judiciary process. Note that. The way in which CRT comes to conclusions minimizes evidence in the judiciary process, but God's law does not. CRT can say that racism is the normal, everyday experience of life in American society and that the perceptions and institutions therein are stained with racism and they could do it without providing enough evidence to condemn the accused. What happens is usually this. They often provide, as they will even speak of, narratives. And then the narratives create the norm. And then the pseudo-norm that is established is used to indict people who had nothing to do with the narrative. I'll say that again because I want you to grab onto that. They will tell stories, they will provide narratives, and the narratives then will create a norm. And then after having created this pseudo-norm, see that story? This is the kind of thing that always happens. It's a norm. And then they will use that norm to indict people who had nothing to do with that narrative in the first place anyway. Now, according to the Mosaic Law, in the case of criminal cases, for instance, there needed to be at least two witnesses in order to proceed with conviction and subsequent punishment. Deuteronomy chapter 17, Deuteronomy chapter 19 provide examples of that. To give you another example, from Exodus 21, verses 28 and 29, If, say, there was a person who had an ox, and this ox had a history of thrusting people with its horns in the past, if the person who was the owner of that ox didn't do something to keep the ox from doing that to people, and then that ox went on to kill a man or a woman or a child, then the person who owned the ox and the ox would be sentenced to death. 
Now, all of that presumes the need for evidence. Where is the evidence that this person knew that the ox had a history of thrusting with its horns? Where is the evidence that he didn't do anything to protect the people from the ox doing that to them? See, case law after case law example in the Old Testament show the importance of objective evidence. You prosecute on the basis of objective evidence. Perspective and anecdotal stories, though not without value, do not trump evidence. Furthermore, and this is important to note too, just because there were failures within the system didn't mean the overthrow of the system. If you were to look at an example, sad example, in 1 Kings 21, where there's a man by the name of Naboth, and Ahab wants his vineyard, and he eventually gets the vineyard. And the way he gets the vineyard is because there are two scoundrels, to use language from the New King James, who bear false witness against Naboth. They abuse the system. But that didn't lead to the overthrow of the system. You do what you can to make sure that wicked people cannot do wicked things within the system. The system was fine. At least for that time until the new covenant would come. So as it relates to CRT, if you are going to assert that in 21st century, that in the 21st century, that racism is the everyday experience and the everyday perception of white people as well as America's systems and structures, you have to provide evidence. And note this, hold on to this, this is so important. Evidence is not simply the presence of disparities. If you start reading critical race theory works, which I'm not advising you to do, but I'm just saying if you did, you will see disparities communicated as evidence. See, there's a difference here. There's differences in demographics here. And as Thomas Sowell does so well in his book, Discrimination and Disparities, he shows how so many of the disparities that are found have no connection or are not necessarily a connection with racism. So you can't fall into the trap of just believing that disparities equal the evidence of racism. Just to give you an example, just to help you kind of think that through, let's say you went into a community, right? And you went into this community and you went into a bank. And you went into that bank and let's say that there were seven employees, all of whom were Hispanic. Would you immediately jump to the conclusion that you were in a racist bank? What happens if, when that bank opened, there were 38 applications And 35 of the applications came from Hispanic individuals. And that the neighborhood appears to be largely Hispanic. And of the the 38 applications that were submitted, 35 were from Hispanic people. And the top seven that ended up getting the jobs at that bank were all Hispanic. Would you conclude that you were in a racist institution? You shouldn't, if you're looking at the evidence. And that's what the biblical worldview does. The biblical worldview looks at evidence. Judgments are based on evidence, not opinions and passionate assertions. Second, CRT advocates often acknowledge that our current legal system is colorblind. They acknowledge that. That our current legal system is colorblind. But they want it to be, unashamedly, they want it to be color conscious. They want a color conscious application of the law in our legal system. They want the law to help remove what they see to be inequities, and they want the law to remove disparities. The Mosaic law, however, was to be applied equally to the Jew and non-Jew alike. Per Leviticus 24, verse 22, you shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one from your own country. This idea is seen also in Leviticus 19.15. Leviticus 19.15 reads, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. 
So whereas CRT endorses partiality and calls for it, God forbids it. God calls for an equal application of the law to all individuals in a society. So what does that mean? That means that loans should be given to individuals who qualify regardless of their color. And if that doesn't happen, that's wrong and it needs to be called into account. It means that criminals of different colors should not receive different sentences for the same crime with the same criminal backgrounds. And so in one way or another, the law must be applied equally. And just because there are people within the system who have done wrong things, you don't turn the system on its head and then apply a standard that God forbids. The answer is not color consciousness. The answer is color blindness and an equal application of the law as we see in the scriptures. Third, CRT labels white people with a greater depth of fallenness, asserting that white people have, quote, inability to think with complexity about racism, that they have, quote, an investment in it, and that few have the, quote, humility to engage with peoples of color about it in an open and thoughtful way. That's from Is Everyone Equal? An Introduction to Key Concepts in Social Justice Education. So CRT thus slanderously labels an entire ethnic group as stained with a certain kind of sin, an inability to think through certain things as though there's a greater depth of fallenness that white people have to endure. That's contrary to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Speaking to the church, there is no temptation that sees you except that which is common to man. We are all from the same fallen stock. What one ethnic group struggles with, another ethnic group struggles with. And of course, different individuals will struggle with things to differing degrees, but we're all from the same fallen stock. You don't look at certain ethnic groups and say, well, that ethnic group, yeah, they're really fallen. Their capacity for knowledge is much more limited than this ethnic group. That is wrong. That is ethnic partiality. That is sinful. Fourth, CRT stirs up hatred and resentment, making villains out of people simply because of their skin color or philosophy, and sowing discord among people where there wasn't any previously. If people believe CRT, think about this, if they believe that, if you buy into this worldview and you start looking at the whole world in this way, rather than a, a, a biblical way, a biblical way you look at the world and you see people of different ethnicities and you're like, this is beautiful. This is God's design. This is, this is what God has in store for the, the day in which we're in the New Jerusalem when all the nations are represented before the throne, all the different ethnic groups. That's the language there. This is beautiful in God's design. There's unity and there's diversity. If you're a Christian, that's how you look at the world. You look at all people from different, different ethnic groups and you rejoice in that. But if you start embracing a CRT worldview, all of a sudden you're looking and you're like, who's an oppressor? Who's an oppressed? Who's an anti-racist ally? Who's not? And all of a sudden, resentment and hatred, envy, those things begin to come. For some, it'll be envy. For others, it'll be resentment. And for others, it will lead to hatred. Take, for instance, the opening words of a prayer by Shaniqua Walker Barnes, found in a prayer devotional. Quote, Dear God, please help me to hate white people, or at least to want to hate them. She goes on and she says, I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls, to stop believing that they can be better, that they can stop being racist, end quote. You read through the entire prayer, if you read through the entirety of it, there are repeated assertions and generalizations of white people 
being racist and assertions that are in themselves clearly racist. And however she meant that opening sentence, dear God, please help me to hate white people, even if by the time you get to the end it's a veiled display of pride, as though she should hate white people, but God has kept her from that, she apparently thinks there's a sense in which white people deserve to be hated. You embrace a CRT worldview, and that's where it'll go. And as a Christian, you don't look at the proponents of a CRT worldview, and you don't fall into the same trap. No, you look at them with love and compassion. You want to contend for truth, but you don't fight evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. Um, In the same way that Marx called for the working class to look at their employers as oppressors who must be revolted against, CRT calls for people to look at other people as oppressors simply because of their skin color or their ideology. Because if somebody doesn't buy into their ideology, then they too are not anti-racist allies. They have internalized whiteness. And because of their philosophy then, not necessarily their skin color, they too become part of the problem. It stirs up anger. It stirs up conflict. It stirs up hate. The scripture is clear. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up conflict. But love covers all wrongs. We are to speak evil of no one. You see that in Titus 3. Which would include, by the way, not calling large swaths of people racist or oppressors. That would be a way in which you would not want to, you know, you don't want to speak evil of people in that way. But even for us as Christians, we don't want to speak evil of anyone. We want to identify certain things as wrong and we want to say that is wrong. But we don't want to speak evil of anyone. You tell the truth, but you do it with kindness and you appreciate the image of God in which... It is reflected in men and women. You're called to put away bitterness. Ephesians 4.31. We're not called to stir it up. According to the scriptures, jealousy and envy are dangerous things. Listen to this. Proverbs 27 verse 4 states, Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. That's pretty expressive, right? Wrath is cool and anger is a torrent. In other words, meaning like a flood. But then it says this. But who is able to stand before jealousy? The implication is clear. Wrath and anger are destructive forces. But, to use language from Tremper Longman III, they pale in light of jealousy. We are commanded to reject hatred, to uproot bitterness, to be peacemakers, and to embrace the biblical command to love our neighbors. If you want to see a good example of where envy goes, you go to the cross. Because when you look in Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel, you see that the religious leadership of the Jews delivered Jesus up to Pilate because of envy. Says it in Matthew and says it in Mark. Jesus was the victim, if you will, suffering on our behalf of envy so that you and I could be delivered from it. And so that as Christians, we could look at people in this world, people who have, say, more opportunities than us, people who have more than us, people who maybe don't struggle with the same illnesses that some of us have struggled with, people who have greater physical abilities, whereas some of us may be physically handicapped in certain ways. And we don't look at people and continuously envy and envy for one reason or another. Even if a CRT advocate got their way and tried to force equality, it would be a nightmare because their supposed utopia would just 
remind them that you cannot have a forced equality in this world. People will die sooner than others. People will get sick. There will be frustration. There will be anger. There will be conflict. And the communist utopias, quote unquote, give example after example of that, where people have died and blood has been shed because you can't reach that, not in the here and now. But the local church could be a microcosm of what's to come. The local church is a group of individuals from all different places, social classes, ethnic groups, and we are one in Jesus Christ. We don't look at one another and somebody in the church who has more money than someone else and say, oh, I envy them. They sure should give me more of their money. Or somebody who has more opportunities and we say, well, they have more opportunities because their family's connected or this or that. You just don't do that. We put away envy. We put away malice. We put away wrath. And what do we put on? The new man who's being renewed in the image of our creator. We say that we share the greatest of all privileges. Sonship of the living God and we are all one in Jesus Christ. Christ is all and he is in all of his people. We share the highest of all privileges and we're not forced to equalize all the lower ones. And when envy rears its ugly head or jealousy, we put it away and we say, that's wrong. Father, forgive me. I thank you that I am forgiven in Jesus Christ. And we say, help me to walk in love. I know love doesn't envy. I know love doesn't boast. I know it's patient. I know it's kind. I know it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And I'm so thankful, Father, that you do not keep a record of my wrongs. That you, the omniscient God, you have cast my sins as far as the east is from the west and you remember them no more because they were placed upon your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ.